Welcome to all those joining us for Chaim Maharan, the day after the second day of Shavuos. Parshas Baalizcha, Tovshin Peigimor. And today's shir is being sponsored anonymously by a very close friend in Brooklyn, New York. Shem should help that the benefit of the study of Torah by all of us should, should bring every type of bracha to the family, to friends, to all of us, Mitzvah and they're donating it in honor of the yard side of Shem Tov, which was on Shavuos. Interesting that I believe there were maybe possibly close to a thousand people that went to Mezhebush, the city where the Baal Shem Tov lived and passed away and is buried, to be there for the yard side for Shavuos. There are accommodations there, Baruch Hashem. There's a hotel, there's multiple hotels, I believe, and accommodations. I did have the privilege of being there a few weeks ago on a trip, a short trip that we were to make to Uman and Breslov and Mezhebush and Bradichev, Baruch Hashem. Okay, we're continuing in some of the versions. This is paragraph Sadik Ches, 98. Rabbein Sal told us a marshal of a king who built a palace for himself and he summoned two people and gave them the job of doing artwork on, on the giant, giant room in the palace. And he split this room into two, two sections down the middle, and each one would have to work on their half to paint it and beautify it, to make it as beautiful as they possibly could for the king in his new palace. And he fixed a certain amount of time that by, by this date, they would have to be finished with a job. One of them immediately went to work and he studied very deeply the art of painting and making murals, beautiful murals and paintings. And he did a beautiful, beautiful job on his part of this giant room. He drew beautiful pictures of all types of animals and birds and other things that would be extremely pleasing to the eye. The second person pretty much ignored the decree of the king and didn't do anything, let the time pass by. And as it started getting close to the date when the king said he's gonna come and review the work to see it, the first one had already completed everything he had to do as beautiful as could possibly be. Now the second one started to look at himself and think, what do I do now that the time is just about up and I wasted all the time and I didn't really take the king's decree seriously. And he began to try to think, what can I possibly do to help myself now? Because in such a short and limited time that's left, there's no way in the world that he'll be able to learn how to paint, how to draw beautiful things and to be able to get it done. So he thought to himself, and he went and smeared the walls in his section with a certain type of a, a pitch, a black pitch, which, which served as a mirror to be able to mirror whatever would be reflected in it. And he put in his entire section, all of the walls and the ceiling, he painted it with this black type of pitch. In Yiddish, it's called pokist. 
and it, it ended up serving, acting as a mirror, a perfect mirror. And he hung up a curtain separating his part of the room, his part of this gigantic room from the other part, and now prepared for the, the king's coming. Sure enough, the time came, and the king came to see the work that they had done, and he saw the first section, which was painted with beautiful, all types of beautiful paintings and murals and birds and everything incredible. The big person did a fabulous job. Now it came to the second part of this large room. There was a curtain there and it was dark underneath. Didn't see anything at first. So the second person got up and he pulled the curtain. He pulled the curtain all the way to open it. And the sun was shining in. And the way the sun shone on this black on the wall, it reflected exactly everything that was in the other side of the room exactly as, as if it was there, the birds and the animals and everything, all the different images that were painted in the, right, in the other side of the room were reflected perfectly in his side of the room. Not only that, but now when the king wanted to bring in furniture, furniture and other things into, into this gigantic room, whatever he would bring into one half of the room, you, it would look, it would appear as if it was in both sides of the room. And Rabbeinazal concluded the story that the king enjoyed this. He liked it. Rabbeinazal writes, more than this, I don't remember. And all of this I heard from Rabbeinazal's mouth. I heard this story directly from Rabbeinazal. I once heard an interpretation of this story <clears throat> based on a chapter in Likuti Maran, based on chapter 153 in Likuti Maran, there Rabbi Nassau explains a term that's used in the Gemara, where the Gemara speaks about kabolas konim, receiving the face of one's rabbi. The Gemara says that on a holiday, we just, we just celebrated Shavuos. Yesterday, <coughs> in Chutzlords, they celebrated it on Friday and on Shabbos. We had it only on Friday in Eretz Yisrael. And the Gemara says, A person is required to receive the face of his rabbi on the holiday. Now the Gemara could just have said, A person is required to visit his rabbi. But it doesn't use that term. It says, To receive the face. And Rabbi Nassau explains over there, that a student has to try to purify himself, to smooth out all the rough edges, meaning to purify himself, to get rid of all the negative character traits, all the taivois roys and midois roys, to become like a mirror, like a smooth glass, completely smooth glass that can reflect completely, that can receive the face of the Rebbe. When the Rebbe is teaching him and the Rebbe is shining his light, his knowledge into the student, we know the Torah says, Your eyes should look at your rabbi and receive the light from the eyes. So when the Rebbe is facing the student, the student, if the student's face is smooth, is like a mirror, meaning it doesn't have these rough edges to it, then the student becomes a reflection, a perfect reflection 
of the Rebbe. And in fact, the Gemara says, if you want to know <clears throat> who about a certain rabbi, look at the student. Look at the student's face. You'll see a reflection of the rabbi. This is if the student has purified himself and has made himself into this mirror, this, this smooth, completely smooth surface. So here we know that when a tzaddik comes to the world, he hits the ground running. As soon as he's born, he starts doing mitzvahs and maizim etc. Each person on their level and their way and, and tries not to waste a moment of life, to use every minute of life for Torah, for Tefillah, for Gemilas Hasodim, to do good things. Then there are other people who get, who get distracted. They come to the world and the Sahara offers all of his wonderful things that this materialistic world has to offer. And the person forgets completely what their mission statement is. We know the Gemara says that when a child is about to come out of the mother's womb, there's the, during the time that the child spent inside the mother's womb, there was an angel teaching it all of the Torah that that child can possibly acquire. Right before the child comes out, the angel flicks the child above the lip and causes him to forget everything that he learned. And then they make the child swear that they're going to do whatever they can to retrieve that lost article, to spend their life retrieving all of that lost knowledge that they had originally. But what happens is many, many people get off to a late start. And the years of their life go by when they're not really doing what they're supposed to do. So the question is, what's the solution for such a person? There's no way in the world that they can go back and fix 20, 30 years of their life, fill, fill in the 20, 30 years. So the eights, so one of the eights is to come close to a tzaddik, to really come close to a true tzaddik, and to become a mirror, to make oneself like a mirror. A mirror is something that has nothing of its own. Its purpose is to reflect the face that's shining into it. That's what, what's looking at the mirror, what's facing the mirror, that's what the mirror shows. If a student can make himself like a mirror of the Rebbe to try to follow on his level whatever he can of what the Rebbe does and what the Rebbe teaches him to do, then, then that's what this Moshal is referring to. Then the king can be pleased with, with the, the final result because he has double, he has the rabbi and the student, he has the sun and the moon, the moon which reflects the light of the sun. It's not equal to the sun by far, but it reflects beautifully the light of the sun. Any questions? Good to see you in, in good health, Rabbi. Um, it's not exactly a question, but this is Yo Kaplan. I'm at the um, Chabad Shul right now in Boynton. Beach, Florida, uh, bringing my mother, 81-year-old mother, back from my brother's wedding next week. And um, I'm looking at the picture of the Rebbe here in the lobby as you're speaking, Babacha Rebbe. Uh, what should we do if, if Rebbeinu is our Rebbe? What do you do? Because the pictures weren't, photography wasn't available in those days. Um, but I also wanted to share that as you're saying this, I'm looking at a beautiful picture of the Babacha Rebbe. The answer is, Rabbi Nezal has a chapter in the Quran where he writes that the face and the, and the brain and the soul of a tzaddik is in his writings. In his writings. When a person is studying the writings of a tzaddik, 
That's another way of looking at the face of the tzaddik, actually looking at the face of a tzaddik. Another way of receiving this face of the tzaddik, when the tzaddik is no longer living, is when we come to the kebra of the tzaddik. That's another place where a part of the neshama of the tzaddik is present there. And that's another way of being able to receive these types of benefits that one would receive from a tzaddik when he's physically living by looking at his face. And the third thing we said is the students. I believe, I don't remember which one of these students once said it, Ashray, fortunate are the eyes which saw the eyes which saw Rabbeinazal. Meaning that there's a chain here also of people who are close students of Rabbeinazal, Rabbeinazal, the other ones that were very close, and they had students, and they had students, and so on and so forth. And there's a chain there, there's a holy chain. My Rebbe Rav Rosenfels spoke about this often. And if a person is to, to link onto that chain, that chain leads directly to the top. And, and, and a person can have that connection. It's not, again, it's not exactly the same as having been there when Rabbi Nassau was physically living, but it's as close as we could possibly get to it today. The truth is, we know that, that one of Rabbi Nachman's students once told one of Rabbi Nassau's students that you being students of Rabbi Nassau know more and have a greater connection to Rabbi Nassau than we who are his actual students. Because when there was a student like Rabbi Nassau, he was the one who Rabbi Nassau himself testified that he's the one that, that got it, that really got it. And he's the one who saw to it that Rabbi Nassau's teachings should have a continuity and should continue and grow from generation to generation to the boom that we see now where all over the world, the teachings of Rabbi Nassau are being learned and studied and, and published. So these are the ways that we can accomplish this today. But there are people who in general like to put up pictures of tzaddikim in the house so that children, as they're growing up, they unfortunately, they get to see the faces of, of the opposite of tzaddikim. So for them to be able to see the faces of tzaddikim or the faces of tamidich hachamen, pious people, etc. Okay, question. Question in the chat. But isn't purifying oneself so completely just as difficult, if not more, than spending years doing mitzvahs and good deeds? <clears throat> this means, what, what this means on the part of the student is doing what the student is capable of at that time. An example, Rabbi Nezal teaches us the importance of mikvah. A person who wasn't religious their whole life, or they weren't that religious, and a person, a man, who starts going to the mikvah on a daily basis, that's a major, major purification. That's a major thing that can help correct thousands of mistakes and that can take the person to another level of, especially if the person is doing it because my Rebbe said so. I'm following, even the, it's the, the Torah tells us to do it, but again, I'm following my Rebbe's instructions. A person tries to get up early in the morning. They have a choice of going to a later minion, an earlier minion. I'm going to go to the earlier minion. 
because my Rebbe said so, because my Rebbe said that the first opportunity that you're allowed to dive and grab it, jump on that opportunity. A person who shows that level of loyalty, loyalty and commitment to a tzaddik, even though they haven't put in the thousands of hours of effort that somebody else did, there's a, there's a saying that the tail of a lion is more powerful than the head of a fox. A fox is a, a, an animal that can bite, that can, can do things. But, but the, the lion, we know that a fox is no match for a lion. And if a person steps on the tail of a lion, they'll have the head of the lion to deal with. So to, to be even the smallest one that's attached to a lion, that's attached to a very, very great tzaddik, can put a person way ahead and in a much better position than a person who is the head of a fox, meaning he's considered a, a leader, a relative leader in other communities, in, in smaller communities, but not attached to the lion, not connected to the, the greatest tzaddikim. Okay, <clears throat> the next story, again, a Moshe. Rabbeinazal told the story about a king who wasn't a great king. And at one point, he was conquered by a much more powerful king and became subservient to the more powerful king. This powerful king conquered other smaller kings and countries. But after a while, this, this smaller king, together with some of the other kings that had been conquered, decided <clears throat> that they don't no longer want to be under his control. And sure enough, they took back, they conquered their country, they got the country back, and also took away some of the other countries that this king had conquered. Now, this smaller king that we spoke about in the beginning of the story started thinking about what's going on, and he saw that this is the way it works. Sometimes this one conquers that one, and, someone's, and then the, the other one conquers back. And he saw that this is the way of the world. And who knows what the future is going to bring. Maybe somebody will come and conquer him again. So he went and built a wall near the sea, and he hid there, like in a fortress, buried into the ground, he hid tremendous wealth and money that he had accumulated from his country, from taxes, all kinds of monies that he got. And he made rooms, different rooms in this little fortress that he made. And in each room, each room was filled with a certain type of coin. And he put a tablet, he put a sign in front of each room saying which type of coin was being stored in that room. Now the entranceway to this whole labyrinth, this whole fortress on the ground, he made it with tremendous chachma. Rabbi Nezal says he used a machine. During Rabbi Nezal's time, it seems the term machine had, had come into existence already. He placed a machine over there that nobody could possibly enter into that whole area unless you knew the exact proper way to be able to get in. And if you didn't, and if you tried to get in, 
this machine would cut the person's head off. And there, there was a large tablet that hung in several different languages and described the way and the, the knowledge that a person needed, how to be able to enter and how to turn the different directions so that the, that machine would not kill them. Sure enough, a period of time went by and the sea ended up flooding that island and that fortress and it was forgotten about completely. Hundreds of years later, a king came along and conquered that area and discovered this island where this king had prepared all of this. This king wasn't such a great, powerful king. He decided to establish a settlement on that island. And sure enough, he settled some Jews there and some people from other nations. And probably there were poor people, poor people that were settled there, who are the ones who are easy to move around. The wealthy people are more established. So there was a poor person there who made a small house for himself near the sea. One Friday, he was digging. He was trying to dig for, for lime that he could possibly sell, you know, to, to be able to earn a little bit of a living. And he discovered that tablet, that large sign. He couldn't read it. He didn't know what it said. So he went to some of the elder non-Jews that were there to see if any of them knew if there was once a settlement in this, on this island years before. None of them knew or could remember that there had been some kind of a settlement there. But a poor person came along who needed a place to eat for Shabbos and he went to this poor person who found this tablet and the person told him that he found this tablet with this writing, he doesn't know what it says. So this poor person told him, I'll read, I'll tell you exactly what it says. And he read everything that was written on it. And this Jew, the other Jew, the poor person went and retrieved all the wealth, all the wealth that had been there. This is the story as Rabbein Zal told it. There isn't an interpretation, a clear interpretation of it, but possibly we can, we can suggest maybe that the fact that this poor person, these two Jews, one was so poor he needed food for Shabbos. The other one invited him and showed him this tablet that he didn't know, he didn't know what was written on it. And sure enough, this Jew that he invited as a guest supposedly who needed, needed the food, was able to give the host, the one who invited him, the knowledge by which to be able to acquire this incredible, incredible wealth. We know the Torah tells us that Haroi, during the seven years of famine, Haroi had Yosef HaTzadik accumulate and acquire all the wealth of Egypt for them to pay, to buy food, to purchase food. And all of that money went into the government treasury. And then sure enough, when it came time for the Jewish people to leave Eretz Yisrael, they ended up acquiring all of this wealth, all this wealth that Paray had accumulated throughout the hundreds of years of slavery and all the different things they went through. 
all of that wealth went to the Jewish people when they left Egypt, and especially at Kriyas Yamsuf, when the Red Sea was split. The Medrash tells us that when Mashiach comes, all the nations of the world will bring gifts to Klal Yisrael, will be bringing us gifts. So we're told that there's going to come a time that there is going to be this tremendous wealth that, that even though the Jewish nation now seems to be poor relative compared to the rest of the world, but when, when there'll be a time of Geula, the, the wealth will be turned over to the hands of the Jewish people. The next, the next paragraph, Rabbein Zal says, Rav Zal says, I heard this told over in Rabbein Zal's name, meaning he didn't hear it directly from Rabbein Zal, regarding people, leaders, leaders of the generation who have fame, people know about them, they're highly respected. Rabbein Zal said there was a king who had two sons. One was very, very smart, very intelligent, very shrewd. And the other one was a shota. He was a fool, very, very simple-minded. No, not able to think anything really intellectual whatsoever. And the king appointed his son, who was the very simple person, he appointed him over the treasury, over the banks, that he would be the one when people came with documents showing that they, they're supposed to get money or whatever, he would be the one to distribute the money to them. Whereas the son who was very intelligent, very bright, him, the king, didn't give him any appointeeship. He didn't put him in any position, any respected position, supposedly. Just that he sat near the king when the king was on his throne, that son, the intelligent one, sat next to him. And people struggled with this. They couldn't imagine, why is this? Why is it that this, the son who they knew was so intelligent and so bright, the king had not appointed him to any major official position? Whereas the other one, <clears throat> who wasn't so smart, people are constantly coming to him to deposit money, to take out money, etc. So the king said to them, you think that's a big deal? You think that's important? That's a person who takes monies that are already in the treasury and is able to give it out and to, to people? That doesn't take a genius. That doesn't take a smart person. The, the, my son, who's very, very smart and intelligent, he sits with me, and he's the one who's always thinking of new ways by which I can conquer countries which I wouldn't even have known about <clears throat> the, these countries, and to be able to draw all of their wealth into the kingdom. Whereas the other son is simply taking wealth that I have already and distributing it. That, that, that doesn't take major, major intellect. And therefore the Chacham, the one with whom the king consults, that's the one, even though he doesn't seem to have any major leadership and authority, he's not well known, but in fact, all the, the whole treasury of the king is thanks to his efforts. And Rabbi Nezal said this regardless, regarding the difference between some people, some leaders who are public figures, very well known, and others who it would seem are far greater than them, a completely higher level of knowledge of Torah and Sitkus, 
and aren't well known at all. They don't have any, any publicity, any fame. And Rabbein Azal gave this Moshal to know that sometimes this could be the reason for it. Any questions, please? Now we come to two stories that are very, very interesting. Rav Nosanzal writes that this first one was said on a Thursday between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur of the next to the last Rosh Hashanah of Rav life, when Rav was still in Breslov. We know that Rav left the city of Breslov during Iyar, the month of Iyar, the beginning of Iyar, we know Rosh Hashanah is in Tishrei. Tishrei, Cheshvan, Kislev, Teve, Shvat, Adar, Nisan, Ior. So eight months later is when Rabbein Azal left Breslov and moved to Oman, where he lived the last five, six months of his life. But this, this story now takes place prior to that, the Rosh Hashanah before that, in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Rabbein Azal said that he had a dream and he doesn't know the interpretation of the dream. One of his students, one of Rabbein Azal's students, had passed away, and Rabbein Azal didn't know about it until that day when he had this dream. And in the dream, Rabbein Azal was there, and all of his students, all of his followers were standing around him, and they were all saying their goodbyes, after Rosh Hashanah, after Rosh Hashanah is over, before a student leaves his Rebbe to go back home, it, the, the respect is to go in and to say goodbye, to get a bracha for the, for the, for the travel and, and for the future. So this man, who had already passed away, was standing there also. And Rabbein Azal asked him, why weren't you with us for Rosh Hashanah? So the person said, because I, I died already, I passed away. So Rav said, so what? So what, if a person passes away, he can't come for a Shoshanah? And the man was quiet. And Rav said, because many of the other students there had spoken to, be, uh, spoken to me about Emuna, I spoke to him also about the topic of Emuna because it seems Rabbein Azal understood that this student had lost some of his emuna, And Rabbein Azal said, I said to him, I'm not the only person in the world. If you don't believe in me, so go to another tzaddik, go to other tzaddikim. Since you still have emuna, if you, you probably have emuna in other, in other tzaddikim, why not try to get close to them? So this student asked Rabbein Azal, who should I get close to? And Rabbein Azal says, it seemed to me that I said to him, get close to this rabbi, this person who's, who's well known. So he said, the student said, I'm very far from him. So I said to him, Rabbein Azal said, then, then go to a different leader. And I listed all the different leaders, the well-known rabbis and leaders at the time, I mentioned to them, and on each one, his response was, I'm far from him. So Rabbein Azal said, I said to him, since you're far from all of them, 
and you don't have who to come close to, so maybe stay here like before and, and become close to me. And then the person said, from you, I'm very far. And Rabbi Nezal said, it seemed to me that this was taking place in middle of the day, around noontime, when the sun is directly overhead. And I watched this person suddenly lift off, go up, up into the air, until he went all the way up to the sun. And then I saw him go down, 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 all the way down to the, to the earth, to the ground, like the sun travels, the sun makes a complete revolution. Just like when the sun is setting. And then he continued to go down, further down, to the point where at midnight, when the sun is mamish, like beneath us, in a sense, completely under us. And then when he went, when he was all the way down there, I heard a scream. I heard him screaming to me. Did you hear how far I am from you? This student was screaming to Rabbi Nezal, did you hear how far I am from you? And Rabbi Nezal said, I don't know. I don't know what this is all about. <clears throat> but I felt a tremendous rahmanas on him. I felt a tremendous pity on him. Because a person who works their whole life, a person is supposed to be trying to work their whole life for the sake of the tachlis, for the ultimate purpose, to be able to return to heaven, to get to Olam Haba and Gan Eden. And Rabbi Nezal said, now while a person is in this world, in this materialistic world, a person doesn't really realize and feel how special it is when a person comes close to a tzaddik. Because we are made of physical matter, we we're earthly, we come from earth, and because of all the obstacles that we create, as a result of our sins, the mistakes that we make, all of these make us, in a sense, desensitized. We can't feel how big it is, how great it really is, that the privilege of being close to a tzaddik. But so, so then what is it really all about? It's really all about the future, that when a person will pass away after years later, then a person will be able to realize how special are the things that they've heard and the things that they'll hear then, meaning that regarding the, the neshama, the soul of every person. And if after a person passes away, if they're still not zeichet to come close to, to be close to a tzaddik, then you could imagine what a pity it is. And Rabbi Nezal added, Rabbi adds, Ashrei to the person who is zeichet, to strengthen themselves every day with faith in Hashem and faith in the truth tzaddik and to fulfill the advice, the guidance of the tzaddik, that person will definitely not be embarrassed, not in this world and not in the next world. Now, continuing along this track, Rabbi Nezal once said, that a person has to strengthen themselves in faith in the true tzaddik to be so strong that even after the person passes away, no one should be able to confuse, no angel or anything should be able to confuse the person whatsoever. Because Rabbi Nezal said there, after the person passes away, 
person has to be very, very strong in order to maintain their faith in the tzaddik. Because there are souls of Rishon, wicked people, who oppose tzaddikim, and they would try to confuse the person and, and to get the person distracted from wanting to connect with the tzaddik so, or being able to come to the tzaddik so that the tzaddik should be able to give their neshama the tikkun that it needs. But Rabbi Nezal said, a person who will be solid in their faith and loyalty to the tzaddik, then no obstacle in the world will be able to block that person from getting to the tzaddik in order to receive the tikkun for their neshama. Because the, the main obstacles over there in the next world is the fact that there are angels. There are negative angels and harmful angels, destructive angels, and they try to confuse the person. And they try to convince the person that, that he's not really such a big tzaddik and you don't really need him, so that the person shouldn't insist on going to the tzaddik. And, and Rav Nassazal adds a, a note here, Rav Nassazal, Rav Nachman Shirin, that after a person passes away, so long as the person hasn't arrived at their final destination, at their final place, they're still not in the world of truth. And the main punishment and suffering at that time is from these destructive angels that can lead a person, that can take a person into the Olam Atoyu, into a world where it looks to the person as if the person is still going on their merry way, they're still living in this world, even though they're not. And they can confuse the person in a tremendous way. A person could spend years of, of a lifetime in a place that's an imaginary world, that's not a real world at all whatsoever. This term, Olam HaToyu, that's brought in the Sifrei Kabbalah, etc. But Rabbein is but if a person will be firm and solid in their mind and refuse to listen to anything they have to say against the tzaddik, and the person insists and says, I don't, hear, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to go to the tzaddik. Then they are forced to let him go. They can no longer prevent the person from getting to the tzaddik because again, the only way they're able to block him is if the person isn't really 100% definite in their mind that this is what they want and this is what they need. And then Rabbi Nassau went on to tell a story about this. He said that in Eretz Yisrael, there was a man who was originally from White Russia, Raisin. <clears throat> and this person, this man traveled to Eretz Yisrael together with Rabbi Nachman Mendel Mivitebsk, who was one of the students of the Mizrucha Magid, who led a whole major aliyah of, of Hasidim who went, up, went, went to Eretz Yisrael, made Aliyah, and settled in Eretz Yisrael in Tveria during the time shortly after the, the Baal Shem Tov passed away, after the Mizrach Magid. It's known that the, this Menachem Mendel Nivitebsk is buried in Tveria together with <coughs> the, one of the Karlina Rebbe's and the Shepetovka and Reb Nachman Horodenka, a whole group that this Vitebsker led on Aliyah Teretz Yisrael. So this person was one of the people that went on that journey, that went up Teretz Yisrael, 
And we know at that time there was major, major machloikis against Hasidim in, from Lithuania, in Raisin, in White Russia. And whoever wanted to come close to these Sadikim had major, major opposition against them. When they arrived in Eretz Yisrael, it was agreed by the rabbis in Eretz Yisrael to send this person outside, back out to Chutzlaretz, in order to bring the monies that were raised in Chutzlaretz to be able to support the Jews in Eretz Yisrael. This person accepted the, this, this position, and he went out on a boat to go back to Chutzlaretz, and he passed away. He died during that trip. This person who was, was very close to Rebbe Nachman Mendel Miviteps. Now, in those days, there's no telephones. There's no way of communicating. In Eretz Yisrael, they had no idea at all that he had passed away. And this person himself, after he died, it seemed to him as if he was traveling to Leipzig. He was traveling to a city on the border of Poland and Germany at the time with his people. He was a businessman, and he's traveling with his assistants the way he used to during his lifetime, because he was a major businessman, and he would travel to the great business fair in Leipzig very often with a whole group of people to help him buy merchandise, etc. So now it seemed to him that he was on this trip, going headed to Leipzig with his people, and the wagon driver is driving. <clears throat> and then as they're going along, he started feeling a deep yearning of wanting to go see his Rebbe. He wanted to go see Rebbe Nachamendel Mehitevs. And because he felt this deep yearning, <clears throat> he was willing to forego the whole business trip and all the everything, and to go go back to visit his Rebbe. So he started talking to the people that were traveling with him, that he has this deep desire to go see, see his Rebbe. And they started laughing at him, ridiculous <clears throat> to give up a business opportunity like this. We're, we're, we're on the way, and who knows how much business we're going to be able to do over there. And sure enough, they, they prevented him. Afterwards, a while later, again, he started having this deep longing to go see his Rebbe. And he told them again that this is what he wants to do. And once again, they attacked him. They said, ridiculous, this is absurd. You have so, so much preparation was made for this business trip. No way in the world to cancel this business trip and, and return. So he listened to them the second time also. They, they prevented him. Then this happened a third time, and he felt a tremendous deep arousal of wanting to go see his Rebbe. And he said, I'm not listening to whatever you have to say. I'm not interested. He said, I'm in charge. I'm in charge here, and I don't care what you have to say. I want to go back. I want to cancel the trip. I want to go back to see my Rebbe. And he told them, turn around, everybody, let's turn around. When they saw that there was no way that they could convince him otherwise, they got up and made like a mutiny, a rebellion. And they said they don't want to listen to him. And he got angry at them and he said, you have to listen to what I say. I'm in charge here. You're all working for me. And they refused to listen. 
and he started getting very angry at them, and they screaming, you have to listen to what I have to say. And then in the midst of all of this, suddenly they revealed to him the truth, that he's no longer physically alive, and all these that are traveling with him that look like his old buddies, these are all malache chabola, angels, destructive angels, and they're the ones that are leading him on this trip. He thinks he's going on a business trip and everything, and it's all imaginary, it's nothing. So he said, if this is the case, then I really want you to take me straight to my Rebbe. So they said, now for sure, we don't want to take you. And they went back and forth, and, and he insisted, and they're saying, no, they don't want to, until it was brought before the Besan Shamala. They were forced to go before the heavenly court. And in the heavenly court, the decision was that he's right that if he insists that he wants to go to his Rebbe, you cannot stop him, you cannot prevent him. So sure enough, they were forced to take him to his Rebbe, Rebbe Nach Mendel Mevitebs, who was living in Eretz Yisrael at the time, in the city of Tveria. And they brought him to the house of Rebbe Nach Mendel. And when he entered into there, one of those destructive angels came in with him. Now, Rebbe Nach Mendel Mevitebs was a great enough tzaddik to be able to see that this was a malach habola, a destructive angel. And the tzaddik got terrified and he, he fainted. And they had to revive him. They had to revive Rabbi Nachman Omiditebs. But then afterwards, he went about for eight days working on the tikkun for this person until he succeeded in completing the tikkun of his neshama. And that's when Rabbi Nachamendel informed the people in Eretz Yisrael that the messenger that they had sent to Chutzlaretz to collect the monies, to bring in the monies, was no longer living. And it was critical that they know about it in order to know how to deal with monies that they were expecting that they needed to, to sustain the community in Eretz Yisrael. And Rabbi Nassau told this story in order for us to realize how important it is for a person to be to realize the incredible need of coming close to a tzaddik even after the person passes away. But the most important thing is dependent on what a person does while they're living in this world. That a person who is solid in their faith, in, in their faith in Hashem, in their faith in the tzaddik, that person will be in the future world to, to have that connection to the tzaddik. Because the Zohar HaKadosh says, In the manner that a person attaches himself to Hashem in this world, that's how the person has an attachment on the future world. If a person was to really put in the effort needed to come close to a tzaddik and to be loyal to the teachings of the tzaddik, <clears throat> that will define the person's privilege of being zeichet to connect to the tzaddik in the future world also. Any questions? Excuse me?
question in the chat <clears throat> regarding the previous story, what can a woman do that would be as purifying and indicative of her desire to follow the tzaddik uh, that's comparable to a man going to the mikvah? The answer is the woman performing her mitzvahs, her tefillah, her tzniyus, her, 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 her respect for Torah, for tzaddikim, those are all the ways that a woman, and again, if she's married, to, to, to do whatever is in her power to support her husband and children in being able to come close to the tzaddik. The next item, Rav Nosanzal says, again, I heard it said over in the name of Rav Nosanzal, that in Yerushalayim, there is a shul <clears throat> where people, all the people that pass away in the world <clears throat> are brought to that shul. And there, they make a decision as to where the person should go. There are those who pass away in Eretz Yisrael and are taken out of Eretz Yisrael. They're taken to Chutzloretz. And there are those who pass away outside of Eretz Yisrael and are brought into Eretz Yisrael. And in that shul, there's a besan, there's a court that judges each and every individual and, and designates the appropriate place for that person. And sometimes they can make a decision that a person goes nowhere, that the person has no place to go. And then the person, Rahman al-Islam, is placed in a kaf hakela. Kaf hakela is like a slingshot in a sense, like a pendulum that swings back and forth and the person has no real place, no fixed, established place. And Rabbi Nassau said, when they bring the person who passed away there, they bring the person with garments. With... Now, sometimes you can have a person whose garment is missing something. It's missing a sleeve. It's missing a pocket. And then you can have a person where their garment is missing a whole major, major part all based on the actions of the, the person, the person's mitzvahs and mice and That's what defines the garments that the person has after they pass away. And according to the garments, that will determine <clears throat> what place that person goes to. Rabbi Nezal said one time they brought a mess there, they brought a person who had passed away who was completely naked without any garments at all. And the decision of the court was that this person should be placed in this kafakela, that this person can't go anywhere because he's completely naked. And a tzaddik came along and took one of his garments and threw it on this mace, this person who had passed away who had no clothing. So the besan asked this tzaddik, why are you giving him your garment? Why should he, why should he be able to benefit from, from your garment? It's not his. And the tzaddik said, I need to send him on a mission. I need to send him to where he has to go to. And that's why I have permission to give him a garment. <clears throat> and the tzaddik said, isn't it true that sometimes you'll have a, a very important person, a minister or something, who wants to send one of his servants to another minister on a mission to deliver something? And he, he, 
time goes by and he asks the servant, did you go? And he says, no, I didn't. Why didn't you go? I told you to go. He said, I didn't have any proper clothing to go to appear in front of that, that minister, that very important person. So his own minister says to him, here, take one of my garments, put it on and go quickly to do the, the, the mission that I gave you. So the tzaddik said here also, because I need to send them on a mission for me, therefore I have the right to give him one of my garments. And in this manner, the tzaddik was able to save that person from this terrible punishment of kaf hakela, as it's called. And again, Rav Zal writes, Rav Zal told this story in order to get us to realize the incredible power of a tzaddik emes, who even has the power to be able to save his students, even in the future world, even over there. We know that generally people assume, rightfully so, that once a person passes away, there's no tshuva, there's nothing a person can do necessarily to help themselves get a tikkun. But that's not to say that a tzaddik has the ability, certainly during a person's lifetime, it's much easier when the person has bechira and a person chooses of their own free will to come close to the tzaddik, then for sure the tzaddik can help them. But even after a person passes away and they leave the world with a negative balance, a tzaddik has the right, he has the ability to be able to override the court decision and to be able to save the person. We have the famous story in the Gemara that we've told many times about Rabbi Meir's Rebbe Acher, who was originally one of the rabbis of the Gemara, Rabbi Elisha ben Avuya. And the Gemara says that at one point he had a tremendous fall and he became an apikoris. He denied the oneness of Hashem and he broke Shabbos and he committed murder and adultery, every kind of sin in the world. And the Gemara says that when he passed away, they, they didn't have what to do with him. They couldn't put him into Gan Eden because of all the terrible things he did. They couldn't put him into Gehenna because a part of his life, he was a great rabbi. So he couldn't go anywhere. And the Gemara shows that Rabbi Meir was mispalo for him. And Rabbi Meir <coughs> was able to get him into Gehenna, that he should be able to go through a purification process. And then the Gemara says, Rabbi Yochanan said, this is what we want, one of our buddies, and we're going to allow this, that people see smoke coming from his kever, implying that he's in Gehenna? No thanks. And the Gemara says that when they eulogized Rabbi Yochanan, they said that the guards of Gehenna knew to step aside, to get out of the way, when Rabbi Yochanan came calling for Acher, saying, he's with us, he's with me. And here the Gemara shows clearly that a tzaddik, a tzaddik of a certain incredible caliber, has that authority, <coughs> The Gemara says that Hashem says, I rule over everything. Who rules over me? Tzaddik. As the Pesach says, Tzaddik. Hashem says, I can issue a decree. And the Tzaddik has the ability to override that decree. We're just coming off Shavuos. Shavuos is when we receive the Torah. And originally it says Hashem tried to give the Torah directly to Klal Yisrael without any, anyone in between. And Hashem said the first two commandments and our souls left us. Everybody died. They had to be brought back to life. 
And that was when the Jews turned to Moshe Rabbeinu and said, you speak to us because we see we cannot receive directly from Hashem in this manner. <clears throat> this is why we say, Torah tzivalanu Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu commanded us Torah. Torah tough reish vav hei, tough vav reish is 611. 611 commandments we receive from Moshe Rabbeinu, two directly from Hashem. The Shavuach says, if a person thinks that there's a difference between what we heard directly from Hashem and we heard from Moshe Rabbeinu, <clears throat> The wording in the Gemara is, Anoichi mipi gvura nemra. The first two commandments we received from the all-powerful one, mipi gvura. Mipi gvura is bigimatria moshe, the Shavar Kodesh says, to show that from our perspective, what we hear from Moshe Rabbeinu and what we hear from Hashem, we treat it with the same exact respect. Like, like Rabbi Akiva said, the Pasuk that says you should fear and respect Hashem, and it has the word S in front of it. S comes to include that the respect for one's rabbi should be like our respect for Hashem. So for those people who would say, sure, if I were living there in time of Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, I would be Yeshua would have to run to keep up with me. I would be the closest, most devoted student of Moshe Rabbeinu. <clears throat> but today, who do we have today? Today there's no rabbis, there's no tzaddikim, there's nothing. For those people, the Shavakodesh says, we have a term, midrabonon. There's midoraisa and midrabonon. Midoraisa means those laws that are derived from the written Torah. Midrabonon means all of the things that we learned from the rabbis of the Gemara, from the Shulchan Aruch, from all the later rabbis, including today's rabbis. That's all under this category of Midrabonon. Midrabonon is Bigematria Moshe, Bigematria Mipigvura, <clears throat> that we have to show the same respect. If a person shows respect to their rabbis, then they know that were they living during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, <clears throat> they would have showed, they would have chosen to, to respect Moshe Rabbeinu, not to side with Koirach, and all the others who opposed Moshe Rabbeinu, who should be zorichet emun and Hashem and emun asadikim, and in that supposed to merit the goal of Shlema, the coming of Moshiach and Herav Yameinu, Amen v'Amen. Wishing everybody a wonderful week. Yeshua is and the Surah Tzadik Mitzvah Shem.